0: Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we're beginning a new series of episodes dedicated to a simple question Who am I? We all have different patterns and tendencies and relate to them in different ways. As we move through the world, we're constantly evaluating, categorizing, and labeling other people and ourselves, both consciously and unconsciously. Those labels take a variety of different forms extroverted and introverted, masculine and feminine, progressive and conservative or even Scorpio and Libra. Labels have benefits and pitfalls. They can be useful and even fun. A whole industry has sprung up around offering online quizzes and different methodologies for better understanding what makes us, well, us. They're convenient shorthand, but what does it really mean when we say she's nervous or he's aggressive? What are the different kinds of tendencies people might have? Where do they come from? And what can we do to relate to them as healthily as possible? And how is our answer to the question, who am I, shaped by the labels others have put upon us or we've put upon ourselves? To explore this big question, we're going to get into what creates our individual variation in personality and temperament, how we're impacted by our genes and the environment, the ups and downs of personality typing, and even psychopathology, including very mild day-to-day forms of pathology that we all carry some version of. So that's going to be our exploration over the next series of episodes that I'm having joined by my favorite guest of all, Dr. Uh Rick Hansen. So how (laughs) are you doing today?
1: (laughs) I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So we're both very excited by this broad family of topics. Uh, To give a little peek behind the curtain, this all kind of started from my interest in doing an episode on various personality typing systems, things like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, things like that. And how those systems can create a sort of echo chamber where a child is told, oh, you're really extroverted. So they start to act more Mm. extroverted over time. From there, we really went down the rabbit hole before emerging with this organizing question of who am I? So I think that it makes sense to start with a a very central part of that question, which is like, where does personality come Mm. from? Like, what are the traits that makes a person a person?
1: Right. Well, this is a longstanding and controversial question in mm-hmm. psychology and even in the humanities in general and, and through folklore. I mean, mm. we talk about different types. You know, is a person a trickster? Is a person more of a hunter? Are they a crafts person? Are they a tinkerer? Are they a tinker tailor soldier, spy, sure. right? What kind yeah. of a person are you? Mm-hmm. And it goes to a deep question as to, well, what is a person? And where do these tendencies come from? So, for example, one of the major ways that in the last hundred years or so of uh, psychology, a major way that's been used to think about personality is in terms of temperament
2: Mm. and
1: the ways in which people differ in the degree to which, let's say, they are sensitive to stimuli,
2: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: reactive to, including to physical stimuli like pleasure or pain. And another uh, aspect of temperament is the degree to which people are uh, intense in their emotions or mild and subdued. So these are these temperamental variations, mm-hmm. and you can see them pretty reliably in newborn infants to mm-hmm. some extent, mm-hmm. and research has been done on that. So these these aspects of personality are considered to be rooted in our biology, mm. uh, not subject to environmental influence. They can be shaped by our environments later, and how we deal with our temperaments is, to some extent, the product of the ways we interact with the world and develop resources or vulnerabilities in terms of our temperaments,
0: but they're kind of baked in. So that gets to a nature-nurture question, sort of what you're alluding to here a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, that right here is another kind of question. So when you have uh, infants who are pretty reliably mm-hmm. uh, describable mm-hmm. as sensitive to uh, stimulation or to very, very mild forms of pain or, mm-hmm. or not, and then you can, in research, find that those qualities are still very present. Mm. Five years later, 10 years later, even 25 years later, it really raises a question, You know, what's baked into us? And to what extent do we have control over who we are? To what extent do we need to accept and come to peace with who we are? Mm. And um, to what extent is is there opportunity, either in terms of social policy having to do with environments or opportunity in terms of psychological development, such that people can grow with and grow out of even that which might be problematic
0: in their temperament?
1: These are big questions, and I'm really looking forward to exploring them with you in this series of podcasts we're going to be doing about this stuff.
0: Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So to your best understanding, both in terms of the research and in terms of your kind of individual opinion on this subject, to what extent is it kind of baked into somebody versus a set of changeable traits that we can influence over time?
1: Yeah, maybe I could answer that question first by talking about what some of that it might be. Absolutely. So one it is tested IQ.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As measured by really high quality at this point, developed um, um, intellectual ability assessments. They're not perfect. They're far from perfect, but they're, they're pretty good. Uh, the Stanford-Binet and also the Wexler um, tests of intelligence, those two general batteries. So we have, um, to what extent is IQ at birth, mm. age six, and age 66, mm-hmm. are the result of what are called heritable factors, mm. which, by the way, is the way that scientists these days think about genetic influences, because genetic influences interact with the environment. Mm. In a sense, much of what shapes us is, at some level, genetic, but it's genetic interacting with environment. So the question then becomes, what's purely heritable, Mm, in effect, mm -hmm. independent of
0: any kind of environment. So what you're saying to kind of read into your statement there in in, in kind of a a, a common English sort of way is that even the elements of this that are quote-unquote genetic are themselves influenced by environment to an extent. To some extent. And the
1: reason that I'm being Spock-like here very precise Mm -hmm.
0: is because if Think about it,
1: and this, again, will be one of our topics, I'm sure, which is one reason why I'm so excited about this, is the misuses, uh, including in the formation of prejudice and Mm. forms of discrimination, the Mm -hmm. misuses of understandings of what is actually genetic. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, characteristics that that have been ascribed to groups of people throughout history as baked in, innate, distinct from, let's say, acquired— um, have been used as the basis for saying, well, they really shouldn't be allowed to vote
0: because sure,
1: yeah. why? Why burden mm-hmm. their limited intellectual capabilities with having to understand politics? Mm-hmm. Or oh well, I guess they're genetically inferior, mm-hmm. so let's send them off to various camps. I mean, it can get really horrific. Mm-hmm. So it's very important, I think, to be very careful about uh, this whole territory, as psychologists have become increasingly sophisticated in in the ways that they do do research. That's why thinking of this in terms of not so much genetic, but heritable is the way that things have moved. Mm -hmm. What is purely heritable, which is to say, mechanically, Mm -hmm. passed down through uh, the formation, essentially, of a gamete at conception that has acquired chunks of DNA, basically, from two parents, male Mm -hmm. and female. And even there, it gets really tricky because more and more research is showing what is transferred Mm -hmm. uh, at conception is actually a package. It's a package both of the genes that are wound up together, little strips of atoms inside twisted up molecules Mm of DNA. But what's also passed down when we are conceived is what could be called an epigenome not Mm. just the genome, and this epigenome involves a variety of regulatory processes that sit on top or around, in some sense, those core molecules of DNA. And increasing research is starting to show that the experiences that parents have can affect that epigenome that is
0: wrapped around the genes that the child Inherit So on some level, the nurture of the parents is influencing the nature of the child.
1: Beautifully said. Or I believe this is a proverb from the Old Testament of the Bible, Uh, It's I believe, expressed this way. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, Mm. and the teeth of their sons are put on edge. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's that interesting idea. And it really shows up around uh, research on non-human animals where for better or for worse, in terms of the ethics that can be really manipulated. And also Mm. in research on human beings, for example, the acquisition of vulnerability to stress and trauma. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to radically oversimplify here for the sake of both myself and our listenership in all of in all of yeah, that which yeah. is obviously a big complicated body of research with a lot of nuance hey to man, it hey man
1: i simplified it already <laughs> okay
0: exactly right like it, you're over there thinking wow i don't know this is sounding pretty simple to me relative to the the big body of complexity that yeah. it actually is so all of that being said as a listener what i'm kind of translating all of that into yeah. in my head right now is that wow it seems pretty nurture-y to me if you had to kind of boil it down to you know, it's about this much nature and about this much nurture. What would you say?
1: If we were to really boil it down, mm-hmm. as a bit of history, for quite a while it was figured that nature, nurture, nature equaling what is heritable, mm-hmm. nurture equaling influences that are both external mm-hmm. and internal, both mm-hmm. environmental causes and internal psychological causes, and the interaction of all that. Kind of the old school way of looking at it was sort of 50-50. Sure, yeah. Or even before that, it was sort of considered, you know, more like 60-40 or two-thirds, one-third nature compared to nurture. Mm, mm -hmm. But when you really, really, really look at it, modern research shows to ballpark a number for you. Mm -hmm. The bottom, bottom line is that on average, about 30% of the variation Mm -hmm. in adults uh, include in terms of IQ, personality, extroversion, introversion, whether someone is conscientious or sloppy, whether someone is empathic or a sociopath, about thirty percent of the variation in those outcomes is rooted in heritable factors. Mm, mm-hmm. That means that the other seventy percent of the variation in adult development, certainly, Has to do with non heritable factors, everything else, which is to say external and internal influences. Mm -hmm. Now, two little caveats here. Yeah, sure. The first caveat is that uh, child development, um, particularly in younger childhood, is probably tilted more toward 50 50 because so much of the development of a very young child, especially, you know, zero to 30 days. Uh, zero to 300 days, you know, the first 10 years of a child's life, mm-hmm. is fairly scripted in terms of a blueprint of construction that's um, genetically grounded, that's that's based in heritable factors. So maybe it's closer to 50-50. Maybe even the way that a infant turns out on average in the first year of that child's life could well be maybe sometimes, maybe it's closer to 70-30 the other way. But But at the point that you're kind of sort of baked mm-hmm. uh, by the time you turn, let's say 18, roughly 70% of the outcomes from there on average have to do with factors that in principle are under our influence to the extent that we influence environments and to the extent that we engage our own psychology. The other caveat is that that phrase I slipped in again and again on average. Mm. Because there's, there's, a, there's an error that's routinely made including by um, academic professionals in the way we, di- we talk about the implications for individuals from findings about groups. Mm-hmm. For example, yes, it's true that roughly 70% of that variation is due to non-heritable factors. All right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that for any specific individual, 70% of who they've become since they were 18 mm. um, is due to influenceable factors of various kinds. It could be hypothetically, that the person at um, age 18 has a genetically rooted illness or disability or extraordinary talent that exerts enormous influence over the course of that person's life in terms of outcomes. Mm -hmm. That particular, for that particular individual, a heritable cause exerts enormous influence. Flip the other way, think about a different individual who at age 18 has extraordinary good fortune, gets Mm. a scholarship Mm -hmm. to an incredible program, meets amazing people, all kinds of doors open. So for that person, it's not even 70-30. It's more like 80-20 or even 90-10. Gotcha. So then there's a common mistake that occurs when people infer from population results to individuals. Mm. All that kind of said, bottom line, there's a lot we can do to help other people and help
0: ourselves, uh, no matter what our genetic inheritance is. So I want to point to something that you seemed to insinuate there that I've heard often in the nature-nurture conversation that I've always kind of had a bit of a question mark around. We tend to think of nature as things we can't control right? and nurture as things we can control. But the reality is that on the nurture side of the equation, there's an enormous amount that's completely outside of our control. Yep ranging from the environment that we are born into, to the influence of friends and family, to whether or not, yeah. you know, when you're driving to school one day, you get hit by a car. That's, that's yeah. nurture, effectively. Yeah. It's not heritable, but we have effectively no control over it. Right. So I just kind of want to point to that, that inside of that, say, 70% number of, mm. quote-unquote, influenceable factors, mm. many of them are not actually influenceable.
1: Yeah, exactly right. That's, again, why I'm kind of being a little, I won't say mealy-mouthed. Sure, but but you're hedging. More like I'm trying to be precise, non-heritable. That's Mm -hmm. where it's a useful
0: distinction. Mm -hmm. Great. So given that, given that even the nurturable elements Mm -hmm. of who we are are effectively often outside of our control, I think that I would pardon someone for feeling a little fatalistic about this whole thing.
1: It's interesting to consider, how do you feel? about realizing that so much of your makeup is handed to you mechanically through molecules of DNA mm. that have been shaped and passed down generation after generation after generation. You know, like how does that feel? Mm. It's really quite powerful to look upstream and to look at your mother and your father, every human and is the product of a mother and a father, Mm -hmm. uh, biologically at least, and to look at their tendencies and see them in yourself, Mm. particularly the ones that seem heritable, not just the result of having a shared environment, um, being affected by them psychologically. And then go even farther to look at your grandparents, to look at each one of those four grandparents and realize that a quarter, essentially, of your genetic makeup passed through them in many ways, and then 16 and 32 and all the way upstream. There's something about that I find personally really quite haunting. Hmm. And it's like each one of us is a vessel for someone else's DNA. And we're the vessel, and if we conceive children who come to term and live, we're passing on that DNA to the next generation and the one after that. What's that feel like? There's something about that that's so easy to just blow right by. Except I just want to kind of slow us down here and get your reactions for us and invite people listening to have their own reactions to it.
0: What do you make of all that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting framing. It's an interesting statement to make on a show that's fundamentally focused on what can we develop inside of ourselves to influence the world around us, to acknowledge that yeah. there is this fundamental underpinning of things that are profoundly outside of our control that make us us? And it seems very reasonable to me to acknowledge all of the things that are outside of our control and then to say, okay, those are things that are outside of my control. Now what can I do with the circle of things that exist inside of my control to make my experience of this world as full and pleasant and joyful as possible and you know it's a really good framing and also it's a good framing because it opens you up to an acceptance of your own vulnerabilities i think mm. you know we we call people by various labels some of which i alluded to in the intro to this episode we call somebody anxious mm. or we call them ocd mm. or we say that they have a aggressive temperament or we call ourselves those things inside of our own mind often and i think that if we have a framing that presents many of those traits as just things that exist inside of the mind due to factors both heritable and non-heritable, which we really didn't have a lot of influence over, Mm. it kind of allows us to move into a greater acceptance of them, because suddenly the idea of fault becomes removed. And I think that feeling at fault for something is a great deal of what prevents somebody from really kind of coming face to face with their limitations in a given moment.
1: I think that's really deep. An aspect of this is to feel how biological you are, Hmm. to really let it land that we are in life. Mm -hmm. It's so easy for humans who are able to mentate and cognize and think, in other words, to go into these Internal worlds to feel somehow disconnected from life or superior to life, and I think in our with our modern technologies we we tend to easily have the notion that we're somehow above life.
0: Mm. yeah, I think that's a really lovely point to kind of big picture it for a second as we move through the world, we often have things that happen to us that seem like an enormously large deal to us and really a pretty small deal to other people, you know, whether it be. Just kind of something in passing that somebody says to you, or it'd be uh, how hurt you are by a certain kind of injury. But we're kind of constantly asking ourselves or constantly talking to ourselves, wow, why is this such a big deal to me when it doesn't seem like it's a big deal to somebody else? Whether your affliction of choice is a depressive mood or it's anxiety, which is mine, or it's kind of an aggressive temperament, we have things that ignite us that don't ignite other people. And There is kind of a self-pathologizing that we can do around that where we diagnose ourselves in some way as being inappropriate or improper, there being something wrong with us. And I do think that stepping back into this larger picture of the the genetic influences and kind of the universal influences, if you even want to think about it in that way, can really help put some of those things in perspective. Yeah. So all that said, I'm kind of diving into one of the little subtopics that we're going to get into here, which has some relevance to that last thing I said about different people having sort of Mm. the traits that really influence them. Um, For me, as you know, I'm really intrigued by different kinds of personality typing systems. I, I find them sort of fun and interesting. And one of the things that I find interesting about them is how into them people are, whether it be about the month that you were born in for a kind of astrological typing system, Mm -hmm. or it'd be something like the Enneagram, which types people based off of their big fears. And really over the last, I think in particular, like 10 years, I've seen a real explosion of interest in these sort of personality typing systems. And I'm just sort of wondering, why do you think we as a culture have such a fascination with personality typing? I wonder if it's because
1: at bottom we're lonely.
0: Hmm. And... (laughs) That's what
1: I'm thinking about that. When you're in a hunter-gatherer band and you live your life with 50 other people, Mm. uh, you don't really have to develop complicated systems for sorting people out because you know them really well. Sure, yeah. It becomes very personal. So when you're meeting lots and lots of people every day, including online, and also to the extent that you feel kind of lonely or disengaged or you want to understand other people, it's natural to move toward these categorizing kinds of systems.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, generally, the brain is a categorization machine, you could say, because what it does is that it indexes across all these disparate moments of life, and in mm. fact, frames of a movie. And then what it does, indexing across all those frames, is it finds what's invariant, unchanging, mm-hmm. across all frames. Yeah. So if you think about it, uh, dogs. Lots and lots of different kinds of dogs, from tiny little Pekingese dogs to giant Great Danes. And yet, there's an there's an essential dogness of all those members of the larger set of dogs that's distinct from the members of the large set of cats of different kinds. And it's it's very efficient, cognitively, neurologically even. We tend to form groups and categories and do what philosophers call essentialize. We turn things into essences or we thingify them, as my friend Daniel Allenberg puts it. Mm-hmm. So there's a tendency to reduce people to types and categorize them. It's really efficient. The issue, of course, and I think this is what you're really getting at so much as great, is when does that categorizing process uh, use us, distinct from us
0: using yet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there's a fundamental question for me in all of these personality typing systems. And I would like to give as a caveat that I am just as responsible here as anybody else. I like these systems a lot. I think they're fun. I think they're interesting. They help me learn about other people. I'm not like fundamentally opposed to them. But I do wonder... If you're told by somebody to use Myers-Briggs as like mm-hmm. a common system, because most people are familiar with it who are probably yeah. listening to this podcast, uh, if you aren't, look it up, give it a shot. Um, I always found it very interesting. So for me, I'm typed by the test as an ENTP. So I'm extroverted, I'm kind of big picture, I'm a thinker, and I'm not really the most detail-oriented human on the face of the planet. So that's my basic type. I do sort of wonder the extent to which when somebody is told you're an ENTP, that they become more of an ENTP for the simple telling that that's what they are. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering what your take psychologically is on our tendency to kind of become what we're told, what we told by people that we are. This is a huge, deep question. And um,
1: if it's okay, let me give you two examples yeah, please. of well-researched Uh, ways of clustering people in terms of different dimensions, okay? So uh, let's just talk about temperament. Mm -hmm. To go back to that, to use a kind of simplified way of describing preschoolers or toddlers or infants, and I've worked a lot in that zero to three, zero to six age group, um, fearful, flexible, or feisty. Mm. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot in there, but you immediately kind of get what we're We're talking about there fearful, kids who are more toward the wary, socially anxious, somewhat rigid sometimes, end of the spectrum, slow to warm, come toward that end. Uh, It's not often that they're actually fearful, but they're wary, they're Mm. vigilant, they're Mm -hmm. cautious, they're behaviorally inhibited rather than um, disinhibited. Well, right there, you can pretty reliably uh, sort uh, kids... uh, uh, along those temperamental uh, dimensions even six weeks after birth mm. certainly uh, three years after birth and those temperamental qualities are pretty stable thirty years later mm. really interesting so, right yeah. there yeah and so to if you so just use that as an example mm-hmm. if you start telling a kid who is temperamentally more Really, toward let's say you. So imagine a distribution. I'll just do it in terms sure. of what fraction of the population. So let's just take the fraction of the population that's the ten percent at either end of the uh, distribution. So now, here's a question for you: To what extent would it actually make a kid who's at the in the ten percent of fearful? You know, simple, simplistic, simplifying word. If you told those kids, day in and day out, that they were really feisty, that they were hyperactive, yeah. that they were spirited, sure. would they actually become spirited? I don't know. So there, this is where the heritability thing comes in. Mm, mm-hmm. It creates a kind of a, fo- a floor and a ceiling is the way people think about it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it limits, it constrains how much the environment can influence you, including environments that are telling you your ex When deep down in your genetic bones, you're really why.
0: Totally fair. Makes total sense. I think that's a great way to think about it, actually, and to frame this whole conversation that we're having here, which is that those kind of heritable factors or the combination of the heritable factors and the factors in your environment that are outside of your control, the things you can't control, broadly speaking, create kind of a floor and a ceiling on certain parts of temperament, emotional regulation, things like that. But inside of that, we can certainly do our best to influence the things that we do have control over to move us closer to that ceiling or further away from that floor. So let's take that child, that child who really had a kind of reserved, distant temperament, and you just sort of reinforced in them day after day that they were in fact a, you know, very gregarious and very socially functional and people really liked them and so on and so forth would you move them closer to the ceiling of their possible range in terms of extroversion? It's a very
1: deep question. Um, first, I want to say that I reserve the view that we can be completely free in our relationship to our tendencies. Hmm. And we can be internally free in our relationship to environmental events that we have no control over. Okay, And I don't say that as an argument for being indifferent to crummy environments and their impacts on people, or to blame people for having intense reactions to their environments. But just my own personal view and personal practice and uh, my sense of what is is at the upper reaches mm-hmm. of human possibility is to uh, have an internal relationship with being shy or being disabled or being uh, a refugee or... Uh, you can be free in your relationship to all that deep down inside yourself. You know, mm, that's sure, that. yeah. Um, well, there's different—this is a huge question for mm-hmm. us, and it also gets at big policy, public policy questions. Sure, yeah. Yeah, if you think about it. So um, I'm going to use shy. If you take kids who are shy,
0: mm-hmm. and let's
1: say reliably observed, and these are kids who, let's say, have had reasonably normal— up, you know, child rearing environments growing up uh, for the first year or two of their life, and they're reliably categorized as really, really shy. Then you take those shy kids. The question is, to what extent can experiences help them be less shy? Yeah. Yep. And uh, I can speak from some experience here. I consider myself shy, actually. I teach for a living and I communicate for a living. Mm. So you might say, well, how can you be shy? But a lot of people who are teachers or therapists deep down are actually kind of shy in their in their nature. I don't think I'll ever not be shy.
2: Mm.
1: On the other hand, I've really learned how to practice with my shyness mm. and to actually help myself, knowing that I'm shy, right? You can help yourself Set yourself up to win in a group environment. Mm-hmm. so, for example, uh, I was in this meditation teacher training um, fifteen, I think roughly years ago, ninety people, and uh, I walked into that setting with ninety people, and I felt very nervous i I didn't wasn't sure at all that I belonged there. And then I developed i this strategy fairly quickly of at every single break or lunch period. I would just go out of my way to connect with one person at a time in a simple and authentic way, ask questions about their life, who are you, what drew you to meditation teaching, what kind of background do you have, yeah, who are you, and I would establish a friendliness with each one of those people one person at a time. So as the days went by and I looked around that circle of 90 people, more and more when my eyes would rest on the face or the eyes of another person, I felt like there was a safe harbor there. Hmm. One person at a time. So that's an example of a lot of, th- of the kind of things people can do. They can be at peace with their temperament. They can also help themselves to succeed given their temperament. And it's also true that challenging that temperament mm-hmm. is often a really good strategy. Some of the research around, around kids who are shy or, or temperamentally anxious has to do with whether it's better to quote unquote toughen them up by pushing them into social settings, or whether it's better to quote unquote coddle them mm-hmm. by you know protecting them from experiences that might upset them. You know, the research generally shows that your best odd strategy, again here too, is an example of what's good for the group isn't necessarily good for the individual, mm-hmm. but you're best odds strategy, based on group findings, is actually to challenge the shy child. And Hmm. to do those challenges, though, within range.
0: Okay, cool. So so you're pushing, but you're not pushing too hard. Exactly right. It's that sweet spot. Yeah.
1: And rather than just uh, let them hide in their bedroom uh, playing video games all day long. Actually, no, make them go to the birthday party they got invited to. And make them write a thank you note. Mm -hmm. Make them... Uh, stand up in class when it's their
0: turn to share. Yeah, so you're expanding the bubble of mm-hmm. comfort over yeah. time, kind of one little notch at a time, pushing mm-hmm. out on that kind of invisible cage.
1: Yeah, yeah. Same with intelligence. Uh, if you take the roughly 3070 contribution of heritable and non-heritable factors to outcome of intellectual ability, mm-hmm. measured, let's say, to kind of operationalize it narrowly mm-hmm. th- through an IQ test. Mm-hmm. There are many, many intellectual capabilities um, that are not measured by standard IQ tests that are really yeah, important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is just a detail. Um, only about half the variation in SAT scores, mm. which you'd think is a pretty close, careful measure of intellectual ability, only about half the variation in SAT scores, the college admission test, um, is accounted for by variation in tested IQ. Mm. That means that, half of the causes of your score on the SAT have to do with stuff that is not measured by gold standard IQ test. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. Only about 10% of the variation in adult outcomes that people care about, lifetime earnings, career success, prominence in your profession, as well as marital satisfaction, relationship satisfaction, personal well-being, longevity, Um, health outcomes that are related to psychological factors, only about 10% of the variation in adult outcomes is associated with variation in tested IQ. Mm -hmm. Wow, 90% is due to all the other stuff. So that's really interesting. All that said, good research shows that whatever that kid's fundamental abilities are, ceiling and floor, that environmental influences, as well as what the person is doing inside their own minds, can move them toward the upper end of that range or the bottom end of that
0: range. Great, yeah.
1: Yeah. And there was some early research that said that and pointed out that if you tell kids that they're really smart, their test scores will go up. Yeah. If you tell them they're dumb, their test scores will go down. There's some truth to that but it's constrained by the ceiling and floor. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The last thing I'll just say is about stereotype threat, okay. which you're, you're pretty knowledgeable about as well, and gonna give a nod here to your sister who's educated mm-hmm. both of us about stereotype threat. It's this basic idea that if you belong to a group of people that has been historically marginalized, discriminated against, and uh, for various, in various ways, told that, you, that the group is inferior, if you're reminded of belonging to that group, on average, your performance in high, especially in high-pressure situations, will tend to go down. Mm-hmm. That's what's called stereotype threat. Mm-hmm. So, if you're, for example, since women and girls are messaged in various ways that they're not good at math science, mm-hmm. as they're not as good as the boys are about math science, if A girl, let's say, about to take a college admissions test is manipulated through an experiment into uh, seeing herself as a female or feeling like she belongs to a group of women or females or maybe even gender specific things like wearing a dress, let's say from wearing pants, her test scores will tend to go down. Mm. So that's an example of the, the way that the environment is categorizing people can worsen their performance. On the other hand, we've all had the experience that if we're with people who believe in us, who see our hidden gifts and can draw those out of us, then we can really shine in regard to those gifts. Uh, I know for myself that I was bright and academically capable, and I thought of myself as sort of bad with people. Mm. and uh, in my nature even, and I was just kind of smart and not very good with people and sort of cold and distant. And actually, as I discovered from college onward, and I have have actually a very warm heart, and the recognition of that was really aided by people who saw that in me Mm. and uh, disconfirmed uh, my view of myself as fairly Spock-like and we're able to say, hey, inside you is an inner McCoy. I know I'm going really dorky with my Star Trek references here.
0: Yeah, I actually think that's a great way of thinking about it. And to unpack that a little bit, it sounds like kind of the takeaway from that, and and really the bow to put on this episode as a whole right now, is the idea that absolutely there are major environmental factors that we don't have control over. There are also major genetic or heritable factors that we don't have a lot of control over. But there are things that we can influence, both in terms of inside of our own body and positively in the lives of other people, by supporting them to continue to push out the walls of the circle that they have placed around themselves in terms of their own self-definition, or the circle that society has placed around them in terms of the group that it has typed them into. And I think that that's a very hopeful message And it also happens to be a very on-brand message Ah. for us because, of course, we just did a whole year of episodes dedicated to doing exactly that. And that certainly won't change moving forward.
1: Yeah, you're really getting at why do you feel like you? Mm -hmm. In other words, moment to moment to moment, the you, you are, which is changing, is the result of various causes. What are those causes? And what are the ones that are relatively stable inside us. And I think many of us have the feeling that it's kind of like the mind is like a village or a noisy committee with different voices, different subpersonalities mm, mm-hmm. talking, tugging here and there. Freud, as you know, had this classic model, the id, ego, and superego that's It being these primal upsurge, the superego being the residues of civilization, trying to top down, say, no, 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 don't do that, with the ego somewhere in the middle, squashed between these powerful forces, Mm. trying to negotiate between them. And so I look really forward to exploring what are some of those major currents and cross currents inside us, that pull us and tug us in different directions? What's the part of us that says yes and the part of us that says no? What's the part of us that says I want and another part who says I'm scared to say what I want and out of those balance each other out? Uh, that is a really cool, deep thing.
0: Great. I think that that's a wonderful note to conclude this episode on and it gives us a really great framing moving forward for everyone who's listening. So. Today, we began the first in a series of episodes dedicated to doing our level best to address the big question of who am I? Uh, This episode was really more framing in nature. We focused for some time on the differences between heritable and non-heritable factors and how they contribute to that sense of who am I. We spoke for a while on temperament and the difference in ranges that different people might have around different kinds of temperament. The one in particular that we spent some time on is somebody who feels, you know, a little bit more introverted in their nature and whether or not it's possible for that person to push the circle of their comfort outward from them over time, either through their own efforts or through the positive efforts of people around them. We spoke for a moment on personality typing, and I kind of posed the question, hey, why do you think we're so into personality typing? And I really loved your answer of, I think it's just because we're lonely <laughs> and because we're searching for ways to understand people in this increasingly disconnected and really disassociated world that we live in. Finally, I, I posed a, a little bit of a devil's advocate question towards you of, hey, if you have somebody who maybe by their nature is more introverted, but you constantly positively reinforce them around being an extroverted person, will that actually change them in a big way over time? And your answer was kind of. It'll push them (laughs) towards the upper end of their range of extroverted outcomes. And inside of that, really reinforce the idea that we can help ourselves through time shoring up the areas where we feel that we might have too little of something and tamping down the ones where we feel that we might have too much of something. So until next time, thanks for listening.